Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In this week's lesson from the Israelites' journey in the wilderness, Max Groene teaches us that God's people were holy and chosen and had a purpose. So open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and join us as we continue to learn how the journey from bondage to freedom points us to Jesus Christ. Well, I'm glad to be up here this morning to be uh, going through Deuteronomy 7 uh, today. So Deuteronomy 7, what we're going to be looking at today is we're going to be looking at uh, Moses speaking to Israel as they get ready to go into the promised land. And he's going to be telling them these, these words from the Lord that, that Israel are a people who are holy and they are chosen. And so that's going to be our theme today. Our map, I haven't moved us from last week. I don't think I was supposed to move us from last week. They're still getting ready to move into the promised land. Um, and our big idea today is going to be that Israel and later we will find out that we too are a people who are holy and chosen and we have a purpose in that. So we'll read uh, Deuteronomy 7 verses 1 through 16 together right now. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But, you sh- but thus shall you deal with them. You shall break their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord, was brought, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the, hand of, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is one, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, and increase the increase of your herds and the young of your flock and the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed among all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness 
and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you, which you knew will he afflict on you, but he will lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. Now, normally when we teach through our passages, we kind of go in a very linear way. We work straight through, kind of going verse by verse or chunk by chunk. But as I was reading Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 16, the way it was laid out didn't quite make sense to me. And that's, now that I'm thinking about it, that might be okay. I'm not a very logical person. My mind kind of just wanders. But that's okay. I have the microphone. So you're going to be forced to, <laughs> you're going to be forced to wander with my mind today. Um, so verse six says this, you know, it says, for you are people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. And that kind of comes in the middle of our passage today. But when I was reading that, I think that this, this is the reason given for all the things Israel are to do. And so there's this chunk that we start with a, you know, go into Canaan, destroy all these people. Don't marry with them. Don't serve their gods because you are holy. And then more things that happens because you're a treasured possession. So what I want to do is I want to pull that middle chunk out. I want to look at what it means to be holy or chosen or this treasured possession before we go into all the things that that will lead Israel into. I don't know if that actually makes sense, but that's how I thought about it. So that's how I'm going to teach it. (laughs) So verse six, we see this right off the bat. You are holy to the Lord, your God, and he has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. So let's start with this word, holy. The Hebrew word for holy is kadosh. And it has a couple different meanings. It means of God, separate, apart, or sacred and holy. And it also means separated from human infirmity, impurity, and sin. If you notice, there's one word that I didn't mention that I think we associate with holiness. Perfect. Nowhere in the definition of holy does it mean perfect. And so it doesn't say, Israel, you are to be holy. Or as saints in the, you know, in the New Testament, Paul continually writes to the saints in this town or of this church, of this church, a holy people. It doesn't say you will be holy. We are called holy. Israel is already considered holy. If there's one thing that I think we've learned so far going through the wilderness is that Israel made a few mistakes. I think we've talked about it every week. Yet they are still called holy. And I think that's what we need to to really take away from this, that they are set apart. They're different. They're not perfect, but they're different. And as we continue to look at Israel, we get to see that other people from other groups, some of the groups listed in, in the groups that they're supposed to destroy, that people from these other groups come into Israel and become a part of that holiness as well. Way at the beginning of our study, we looked at the exodus from Egypt. And I think Hunter mentioned that as the Israelites left, they left with more than just Israelites. Egyptians went with them into the wilderness. And so even this being spoken by Moses to the people of Israel, you are a holy people. Not everyone there is even of Israelite blood. There are some Egyptians that are still with them that are now being told you are a holy and chosen people. And so that's a theme that we'll get to as we continue to look at what does it mean for Israel to be holy? 
The other thing that I think is even more difficult for me to come to grips to is not just the holiness aspect. I get that. Israel is set apart. They're different. They do things differently. But this next line that says that they are chosen, chosen for a people to be his treasured possession. Now that's been difficult for me to wrestle with. I think my entire, you know, time that I've been following Christ is why? Why are Israel chosen and what does that mean? In Tribe Fellowship, we've been studying the story of Abraham recently. Tribe Fellowship is uh, the chapel's ministry to uh, our William & Mary students. And so we've been studying the story of Abraham recently. And last week, we looked at um, Isaac's two sons. We looked at uh, Jacob and Esau. And it was a tough passage to study. Um, Some of these passages, I can say like, oh, they're really tough for the college students to wrestle with. No, no, no. This one was really hard for me to wrestle with because you get to this line that gets you know alluded to in the story of in Genesis when we look at Jacob and Esau then it gets spoken again in Malachi and then Paul mentions it in Romans 9 and you'll see that why we're talking about this it really pertains to this idea of what is it what does it mean for Israel to be chosen so this is what Paul writes in Romans 9 for this is what the promise said about this, about this time next year, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, and but Esau I hated. This has been a tough passage for me to wrestle with. What does it mean for God to love Jacob? What does it mean for God to hate Esau? What does it mean for Israel to be chosen or loved versus all these other people that are already in the promised land? And so I think that there are two questions that come from this this study of Jacob and Esau. One, does God love Jacob the person and hate Esau the person? Or does he love Jacob the people and his descendants and Esau the people? And I think it's very clear um, as we study this that um, God's compassion is on Jacob and all of his descendants and not on Esau who become the Edomites. And so A very clear answer to question one is it's not about Jacob and Esau being loved and hated. It's about their descendants and what that means. The next question is the biggest question. What does it mean to be loved or hated in this context? And so I did what every great scholar does. I looked for people smarter than myself. So this is what I just, this is something that I just pulled Uh, straight from the Pillar New Testament commentary. And I'm just going to read that for you. And it speaks about this love and hating and what it pertains to this idea of Israel being chosen. The meaning of hatred or hated is a different kind of problem. There's a difficulty in that scripture speaks of a love of God for the whole world from John 3.16. And the meaning of God is love in 1 John. It's surely that God loves quite irrespective of merit or demerit in the beloved, 
Specifically, he is said to love sinners. It is also true that in Scripture, there are cases where hate seems clearly just to mean that he loves less. Many find this an acceptable solution here. God loved Esau less than he loved Jacob, or the nation of Edom less than the nation of Israel. But it is perhaps more likely that like Calvin, we should understand the expression in the sense of reject and accept. He explains the passage thus, I chose Jacob and rejected Esau, induced into this course by my mercy alone and not by any worthiness of his works. I had rejected the Edomites. This accords with the stress throughout the entire passage on the thought of election for service. God chose Israel for this role and he did not choose Edom. And so what does it mean for Jacob to be loved? It means that Jacob and his descendants have been chosen for service. And I think that it's really important that we distinguish this election to service is different than an election to salvation. He is not saying that only Israel can be saved, but he is saying that Israel is to be used. As we've already seen that this very passage that we're studying is being spoken to people who are not descendants of Jacob. Egyptians are part of this. And we look at Ruth and we look at Moses' father-in-law. We look at Rahab. We look at all of these other people who end up becoming a part of Israel who are not Israelites. And they too become part of this, grafted into Israel, chosen for service. And so what does it mean for Israel to be chosen? It means that they've been given a task, that they serve a purpose in God's plan on earth. And so I want to look at what that purpose is. What has Israel been set apart to do, which is holiness? What are they chosen to do? And I think we can look at three things pretty clearly. They've been holy and chosen. They've been set apart. They've been set apart to worship the Lord. They've been set apart as an instrument of God's judgment. And they've been set apart for God's glory. And so first, we'll look at how they've been set apart to worship the Lord. Verse 4 says, For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. This is a common theme that we've seen throughout our study of the wilderness. Um, A few months ago, I spoke about this word, abed, to serve and perform acts of worship. And I asked you all to help me finish a line from Exodus 9.1. Go in to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord your God, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go. The famous line of Moses. And a few weeks ago, what I really wanted to concentrate on is that we constantly remember that Moses was told to to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And then we cut off the half of the verse that we don't like as much. Let my people go that they may serve me. That Hebrew word of serve being abed, which means to serve or to perform acts of worship. From the start, Israel was saved, rescued from Egypt, from Egypt, to go and learn how to serve and worship the Lord. And we've learned since then how they were intended to do so. I love looking at Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. Dale has taught us not once, but twice about the Ten Commandments. Um, And as we look at the Ten Commandments again, no, I don't have a slide of this. 
It starts with saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I saved you. Why? You shall have no other gods before me. And then two verses down, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord, your, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And so from the start, we look at what Israel has been set apart to do. They've been set apart to learn how to worship and serve God. And as things fell into place, I think we've seen that others, as, as Israel has been doing this, and the better that they have loved and served and worshiped God, we have seen more people from surrounding nations come and join them to also be set apart to learn how to serve and worship God. The next thing we see is that they are set apart as an instrument of God's judgment. In our passage today, verses two through five says this, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. My first reaction is, ooh, that's pretty harsh. It's pretty harsh. And I think something that I've seen in plenty of people my own age is that they want to study the God of the New Testament, not the God of the Old Testament. We fail to recognize that there's one God and he's always been the same and he will always be the same. God has always taken a very harsh stance with sin and he always will. And so the first thing we see in this is one, that he's protecting Israel, protecting Israel from falling away from him, protecting Israel from breaking the first commandment, from worshiping other gods. Um, I remember looking at the Moabites marrying into Israel and the Israelites starting to worship uh, Baal at Peor. We studied that, that what he's telling them not to do is not this great revelation of God's wisdom. Of course it is that, but it's also him just telling them what they've already done. He's saying, don't do this because it'll be bad for you. And I'm hoping the Israelites are saying, that's right, we did do that. And it was bad for us. <laughs> but the second reason that we see this, um, that there's to go and, and destroy these people is one, protection from falling away to worship other gods. But two, it's actually been promised to Abraham years and years before. If we look at Genesis 15, which is the original covenant made with Abraham, the father of Israel, we see this. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years, Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here, the promised land, in the fourth generation. 
for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I've read the covenants made with Abram or Abraham many times and completely forgot that last line. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Israel had to leave. God told Abraham that the Israelites would leave, that they would go to Egypt, Egypt, and then they would go and wander, and they would come back to Canaan, to the promised land, once the iniquity of the people who were living there was complete. And that's now. That's where we are in Deuteronomy 7. Hundreds of years later, hundreds of years for those that lived in Canaan to have quite a list of iniquity, I would guess. And now God brings Israel back and he tells them to go and to destroy these people, to go to war with them, that he will give them to Israel, that Israel will triumph over them. Israel has been chosen by God to be an instrument of his judgment and justice in the promised land. And so I think that's another way that we see that Israel has been set apart is that they are God's hands and feet in this. That after the iniquity of the, those living in Canaan has been complete, then he sends Israel back. And the last thing that we see is that they've been set apart for God's glory. Now, Israel is a part of a time or a, a, a space that is called the ancient Near East. And as you could guess, their context and the way that their culture worked was quite a bit different than ours. Part of this is that every group of people had a God or multiple gods, a God or multiple gods. And when you saw a group of people triumph or have a lot of success, then part of this context was their God must be really powerful or the gods that they serve must be really strong. And when a group of people is destroyed, you you would say their God must suck. He must be really weak. It makes sense. We don't really think that way anymore, but that is the context that Israel was living in. And so the more power or success that a group had, it meant that their gods must be stronger. And the less power or success that a group had, it meant their gods must be weaker. We see this in Joshua 2. We look at Rahab in the walls of Jericho. She'd never met anyone from Israel before, but this is what she says. Before the men lay down, the men being Israelites who had come into the city, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, Oshion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. It gives me goosebumps. It gives me goosebumps that a woman who who had never known God would just come to this point where she says, the Lord, your God, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. It gives me goosebumps to think that because of what Israel was doing, because of the way God was using Israel, people came into knowledge of the one true God. Because of the way God used Israel, 
he was glorified. He was glorified in them. He set them apart to be holy. He chose them to be his instruments. And in that culture, as he chose them to be their instruments, and they did have some success, people began to know God. It's amazing. Verse 7 that we're studying says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. I think of how Israel became this group of people. They came through Abraham and Sarah, and Sarah was barren. They came through Isaac and Rebekah, and Rebekah was barren. God chose Israel not because they were strong, but because they were weak. He chose Israel not because they were the biggest, the most numbers. He chose them from women who could not have children because it pointed to his own glory. And when we look at God using Israel as instruments of his judgment, it's to be glorified. You see, as Israel would go through the promised land, as they would do these things that God has commanded them to do, as they flourished because of them, people came into knowledge of the one true God in an environment filled with different gods to choose to worship. They came to knowledge in the one true God. I think when we look at this context of the ancient Near East, when we look at this concept of Israel being chosen to glorify God, we actually begin to understand the Mosaic Covenant a lot better. And we see this in the final chunk of our passage. Our final chunk of our passage says this, and because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, the Lord your God, let's see, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock and the lands that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew, will he inflict on you. But he will lay them on all who hate you and you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. And so we come to this. The Mosaic covenant is a covenant of contingency. If you worship God, God will bless you. If you turn from God, he will curse you and cause you to come back to him, crawl back to him. And so this is the culture. If Israel turned from God and started worshiping Baal or other gods or Asherah poles and all these other things, and if they did that and flourished, those around them would say, it's those gods who have caused them to flourish. If Israel worshiped Yahweh and flourished, they would say, it is Yahweh that has caused them to flourish. And so we see that the very understanding, like us understanding the Mosaic covenant is very tied with the context and culture that Israel is living in. If Israel was to not worship God and flourish, it would not bring God glory. But when they worship God and when they become chosen instruments for him and flourish in that, that's when we see people joining. That's when we see Ruth, a Moabite, coming in saying, I want to know your God. We see Rahab 
from Jericho saying, I want to know your God. Surely he is God of the heavens and the earth. And so now we dig into what this means for us. It's great to study Israel being holy. It's great to study Israel being chosen. But what about me? Am I holy? Am I chosen? We go back to Romans where we studied, where we looked at Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And right before this, it says this. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. The children of promise are counted as offspring. Israel was called holy and chosen. And now anyone who is a child of promise, anyone who proclaims the name of Jesus Christ as Messiah and Savior, are children of the promise. We, if we proclaim Jesus' name in our life and his power over us, his power over death and his resurrection, we are holy. We also are chosen. I think through... um, I've never been deployed, but I have gone to a lot of pretend deployments, um, you know, gone out in the woods and played army a lot. And before you go out there, you do this thing, they call it a road to war brief, and they give you the giant scope of the war you're in. And I want to apply this to the way that I have been con- uh, understanding scripture better. In a war, there are different strategies used. Within a war, there are different phases of the war. And I think the same thing is true when we read the Bible. The great war is not Israel against those who are already in the promised land. The great war of the Bible is God triumphing over death, sin, and Satan. And there are different phases to that war. The phase that Israel was in had to do with them triumphing over the people in Canaan in order that God be glorified. We're in a different phase. We're in a different phase of the war. We are not being called holy and chosen to go and destroy those who don't know God. That is not our big takeaway for today. We're in a different context and we're no longer living under the Mosaic covenant, but we're living under the new covenant, the new covenant that was made in Jesus Christ's blood. And so what does this mean for us? It means that we are also called holy. We're also called chosen in a different phase of the war against Satan and sin and evil. We are still being asked to glorify God. We are still being asked to worship him and serve him with our lives. We are still being asked to bring him glory that through us, others might come into knowledge of the one true God. I don't know anyone in my life that's worshiping Baal but I know a lot of people in my life that are worshiping money and success and popularity and prosperity and all of these other false gods that are in our context. And I pray that at some point in my life, that through my devotion to God, through serving him and worshiping him, that he be glorified, that even one person who is 
right now, worshiping the God of success would come into knowledge of the one true God, of Yahweh who loves and forgives and saves. Thanks for joining us today. For more information on the Williamsburg Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash mensbreakfast. I hope you'll join us again next week for the next installment of our journey with the Israelites through the wilderness. Until then, God bless and have a great week. Thank you.